Anyone who knows me very well likely knows that one of my favorite things to do is just be in the outdoors. I just love being in nature, um, whether that's hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, anything like that, where I get to get just away from civilization and just enjoy natural beauty in things, waterfalls, mountains, any of it. Just just love being out and seeing that kind of stuff. In fact, man, I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way as... Um, as a church, but like of all the reasons that like really keep our family in the DFW area, it's just how beautiful it is here. I mean, just all the, all the amazing things we get to see. Um, it's funny that we call this North Texas. I'm from the real North Texas, okay? Some of you guys call it the Panhandle. Um, so that's actually much further north. I don't know why we call DFW North Texas. Um, but in, uh, in Panhandle, in the region, there's a little town right in the middle called Panhandle. It's where I grew up first 18 years of my life. And it's not far from Powder Canyon, which is the second biggest canyon in the U.S., next to, of course, the, the Grand Canyon. Um, but I didn't, uh, I didn't really fully take advantage of that when I lived there because it's just like right there. You know, you don't think a lot of it. But since being gone, always anytime I'm up in that area, I like to drive through there, go camp there, just spend some time there. And there's so many different views you can get of that canyon. That's true of anything with a lot of natural beauty, right? But think about it. You can go down into the canyon and you can like inspect the rocks. You can look up at the sheer faces of the cliff, the different formations. There's the lighthouse. That's kind of like the, the most famous uh, formation there. There's all kinds of things you can look at down from the bottom of the canyon. Um, if you're a wildlife person, there's lots of mule deer in there, some whitetails, armadillos, um, even some odd sheep, which are really cool. And I love just like taking binoculars, just trying to find that stuff, zooming in on different things, right? Um, but then my favorite thing to do, the best view of stuff like that, at least with the canyon, in my opinion, is from the top, right? When you get to come back, get out on the rim, and just see how vast and expansive that thing is. And it's just breathtaking. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that is what the writer of Hebrews has been doing. Um, for the last 18 weeks in our journey through this book. This sermon is titled, Jesus is Better, Part 18. Um, because that's essentially been the message of the entire book. It's just one thing, right? It's one message, it's one idea. But he's been looking at it through all these various angles and perspectives to show us and teach us and look at from different angles and perspectives how and why Jesus is so much better than what they had in the Old Covenant. Um, and so this passage um, in chapter 10 is going to be kind of a transition point. So this will be kind of the, the closing argument, the final um, presentation of how and why Jesus is better. When we get into chapter 11 and beyond, or even the back half of chapter 10, what we're going to see is a transition to more application, uh, more encouragement because of how much better Jesus is. But this is this week's sermon, chapter 10, is kind of like that that view from the rim where we've done all these, we've inspected these things on a micro level, we've dug into the details, and now we're just kind of putting a bow on it, zooming out and seeing it at full scale. Um, so we're going to walk through this passage just very methodically, section by section here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we'll start with verses 1 through 4. Um, and what we're going to see in verses 1 through 4 is this idea that the law was insufficient to deal with sin. The old covenant the old way of doing things, the sacrificial system, was not sufficient to deal with the problem of sin in and among 
God's people. Um, and we see that evidence by three different things. Number one, by repetition. Start right there in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices, look here, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is something the author of Hebrews emphasized a lot, is the idea that one of the signs that this old covenant wasn't really dealing with sin the way it needed to be dealt with was the repetition of it. They didn't just make one sacrifice and be good. They had to keep going back, keep shedding more blood, doing it again and again because it wasn't fully getting it done. Number two, cloudy consciences. Look right there in the next verse, Hebrews 10, 2. Otherwise, they would, not have ceased, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. If you back up a little bit in chapter 9, verse 9, he says it this way, that these sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So in other words, they would make these sacrifices, they would do these things, but they still knew deep down that that wasn't cutting it, probably because of the repetition. They knew they were going to have to go back again and do the same thing again the next day, the next month, the next year, whatever it was, because they knew the sacrifices weren't enough, they bore a guilty conscience over their sin, longing for a forgiveness greater than what that system could provide. And then number three, limited access. There's been a lot made of the idea that in this system, only certain people could go in so far, and you dare not go further. If you're the high priest, kind of the most spiritually privileged person in the entire nation, you got to go before the true presence of God, right? The deepest presence of God, the Holy of Holies, only once a year. No one else even got to go in there ever. There was a curtain, a veil that presented a thing that said, you cannot get any closer to God than this. It was marked by limited access. And then to kind of to kind of put a exclamation mark on this and really hit it right on the nose, he makes a statement in verse 4 that's really like he's been saying this all along, but he just comes out and says it up front very clearly here. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because of the repetition, because of the cloudy consciousness, and because of the limited access, all those are indications that these sacrifices weren't really dealing with sin the way that sin needed to be dealt with. So we go into verses 5 through 10. Here's what we're going to see in verses 5 through 10, that we're going to see the old covenant sacrifices compared to Christ's life and death and how much better what he provides is. So let's come back for just a minute to the old covenant sacrifices. These sacrifices were sometimes shunned. There's your alliteration for this morning. Couldn't make the points alliterate, so I stuck it in there. Sacrifices were sometimes shunned. Look there in verse 5. It says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And let me push pause there and give us some background in this text. Right there in chapter 10, verse 5, he's actually quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 40. So this is something that we would think of being David's words, right? David would have been the one that said this. And it's kind of surprising that the author of Hebrews doesn't credit these words to David. And in fact, oftentimes when the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, they'll either credit it to the, the author, the person speaking it, or to the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see that later on in Hebrews chapter 10, 
where the author credits the Holy Spirit for inspiring them and to speak these words. So it ought to kind of catch our attention that the author of Hebrews credits these words from Psalm chapter 40, spoken by the mouth of David, as being the words of Jesus. And what we're going to see as we move through is that these words were very much about Jesus and who he would be and what he would do. But let's look at this beginning of the verse, chapter 10, verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now that is another thing that's a little interesting because you think, well, if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that God very much desired sacrifices and offerings. In fact, he commanded it. In fact, there are entire books like the book of Leviticus pretty much detailing what kind of sacrifices would need to be made and when and how and who. Very detailed, very clear instructions that God wanted lots of sacrifices to be made. So why would he say, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired? Well, we get an idea from a couple of other passages in the Old Testament. One of those being Hosea 6.6, where God says, For I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what we see in general in the Old Testament is this idea that what God really wanted was perfect obedience, right? That the sacrifices came as a result because they, people did not perfectly obey God, but originally what God is really after, what he really desires and expects from his people and from humankind in general is a life of perfect obedience. So think about it this way. When God made Adam and Eve, he did not just make them so that they would be in the garden and just go do whatever they want. No, but he made them with the intent to be the reflection of his glory on the earth, to bear his image, to walk in his ways, to mirror him, and to live in submission to him. Just like a parent would expect a five-year-old to walk in submission to that authority, God expected mankind to walk in submission to his authority. There's a passage in 1 Samuel verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 22, where Saul has been commanded to go in. This is when Saul was king. He's been commanded to go into a village and just wipe out everyone and everything. And rather than obeying that command, Saul takes it upon himself to save some of the animals and make a sacrifice to God, thinking that God would be pleased with that. And when Samuel shows up on the scene, he says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because at the end of the day, what God is really after from his people is not checking these boxes of killing these animals and doing these ritualistic practices. What he really wants is the the hearts of the people to be obedient and submissive to him. Now here's the problem. All of them and all of us have failed miserably at that expectation. Psalm 103.3 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, some translations say, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And the obvious rhetorical answer there is no one. No one could stand before the Lord had he kept a record or a mark of all our iniquities and sins. One of the reasons the priests were so insufficient and inadequate in the Old Testament is that, yeah, they would come into the temple to bring an offering to atone for the sins of the people, but oh wait, they had their own sins and rebellion to deal with as well. So that's the Old Covenant, that's the 
the problems and the deficiencies of it. And then as we continue on in these verses, what we're going to see is Jesus shows up. That's why we see um, Jesus being given credit for what's said in Psalm 40. Jesus steps into the scene, takes on flesh to provide two things. So we're going to look at the two things he provides by taking on flesh. Number one, accreditation of righteousness through his life. So I'm going to get a little theological here on you, but it's going to be good to help us understand this text. When Adam and Eve were created, they sinned. And at that point, they had two problems. Number one, the problem of their sin and rebellion and that deserving punishment from God. They needed forgiveness. Their sin needed to be atoned for. Even once that was done, let's just say something, some way, their sin was atoned for, they were forgiven. All that would do was bring them up to a status of being morally neutral before God. Right? They, they would still not have attained what we might call righteous. Because again, what God wanted was for to, them to live a life of righteousness and submission and obedience to him. To have their sins forgiven would just simply bring them up to normal. They still, what God wanted was to live a righteous and perfect and obedient life before God. And one of the reasons Jesus came to, to become one of us that took on flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the reason he did that was not just to forgive our sins, but to credit us with his righteous life he lived on our behalf. Look at verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. They were inadequate. Verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So the author is saying, look, God did these sacrifices. That is not what God was ultimately after. But then Jesus steps in and says, behold, I have come to do your will. I have come and taken on flesh to do the will of the Father to live a life of obedience to what God says as a man on behalf of humanity that that righteous life might then be credited to people who did not obey God perfectly. There's a, there's a word for this, accreditation of Jesus' righteousness to us. Um, theological word for it, and it's called imputation. That Jesus' righteous life is imputed or credited to us as rebel Sinners. Now, I don't really like that word because to me it sounds like something you might do if you were sick to your stomach, right? Um, like go in that bathroom, man. Someone imputed in there. It is not good. Um, so I prefer the term the divine switcheroo. So think of it like this. It's going to make a little more sense. It's a much more technical term. The divine switcheroo is this. Over here you've got us. We have lived a life of rebellion against God. Not only have we not obeyed him perfectly, but we have rebelled against him. And what we have earned for ourselves is distance and wrath and punishment from God. Over here, you've got Jesus. The word became flesh. He became one of us, took on a body of flesh, lived the life that we couldn't live, and died in our place. So here's essentially what happens, that Jesus or God treats us as though we had lived Jesus' life. He takes the righteous life of Jesus and lays it over us as a covering. And then he treats Jesus as though he had lived our life of sin. He takes the sin, the rebellion that we committed, and lays it on Jesus. There's a switching of places so that what Jesus provides is not just atonement and forgiveness of sin, but accreditation to us of a life lived perfectly according to God's will. 
So what is this will that he says? In verse 9, he adds, behold, Jesus says, I have come to do your will. Specifically, what was the will of God for Jesus? What would be the life Jesus would live on earth as a human that would be pleasing to God, unlike the sacrifices in the Old Testament, which were not pleasing to God? Well, it's where we get the second thing, atonement of sins through his death. What was the will of God for the life of Jesus? We find it in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that's the Father, to crush him, the Son. He has put him to grief. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, so imagine the Father in anguish looking down on the Son. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accredited righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So there you see it just at the end of that verse, that the righteous one, Jesus, because of his life, would make many righteous, and he would bear the punishment for our sin and iniquity. That's why we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That God has provided a body that Jesus might live the life as a human and die in our place, providing accreditation of righteousness through his life and atonement of sins through his death. There's a... Um, very, very old church father from, I think it's the second or third century A.D. named Athanasius. And he said it like this. He said, as the word who is immortal and the father's son, it was not possible for him to die. In other words, before Jesus took on flesh, he couldn't die because he was the eternal, infinite son of God. And this is the reason why he assumed a body, why Jesus became man, to assume a body capable of dying. So that's how Jesus fulfills what the law could not. Now as we move on to verses 11 through 18, we see just essentially this kind of closing argument here um, that Jesus is better. So think about it this way. He's, he's done the research. He's mounted the evidence. He's presented the data. And now he's wrapping it up with this final thought. And as we get there, I want you to remember the context of this letter, okay? This was written to a group of people who were Jewish who had become Christians, right? Um, So their temptation as Jews, because believing in Jesus was costing them something. Their friends, their family members, maybe the government, were okay with them believing in the God of the Old Covenant. But as soon as they identify and attach themselves to Jesus, it would mean loss of friends, loss of family, maybe loss of job. It was going to cost them something. So their temptation was to say, look, we still want to pursue God. We still want to love God. We still want to be known by God. But let's, let's do that in this old way and just kind of push Jesus off to the side and lean into what we've always done and known. Because then we can still know God, but avoid some of the persecution. And the writer is urging them that Jesus is better. Verse 11. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. In other words, he's saying, hey, look, yeah, they're still doing that. Over there at the temple in Jerusalem, the priests are going in, they're offering the sacrifices, but it's not working. The sacrifices they're offering cannot take away sins. You can go to that if you want, but it's going to get you nowhere. There's a commentator named Richard Phillips we've been using a lot in the book of Hebrews, and he said it this way. He said, what, he might say, saying the author is saying this to the Hebrews, be turned to a religion, a priesthood, a covenant, that despite all the labor and all the activity and all the blood and sweat and tears can never really take away sins. It is unimaginable folly, despite the worldly pain of persecution for the sake of Christ, to go from forgiveness and peace and real access to God back to the old situation of sin and its dreadful alienation. And he goes on and wraps up this section by saying this. Then he adds in verse 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He's again quoting back in Jeremiah when God prophesied that there was the old covenant. And God said, I will make a new covenant with my people. And I will write my words, not just on the law, not just on tablets, but I will write my words on their heart. And all of them shall know me from the least to the greatest. And because of this new covenant, I will fully remove their sins. And there will be no need for sacrifice anymore. basically saying these sacrifices that you used to do, they're obsolete. They're no longer needed. They were insufficient to begin with, and after the cross, there is no need to do anything else because the cross has provided full and final forgiveness and assurance. He's essentially telling them this, like, yeah, you can go back to the temple and kill some more animals, but basically what you're doing is this. It would be like taking a teaspoon of water, hiking up to the top of Niagara Falls, dumping that teaspoon of water into the falls and going, now we have a waterfall. They didn't even work to begin with, and what Jesus has done is so full and so great and so abundant that there is no comparison between the two. There is nothing that needs to be added to this. It's done. And so the application for them and for us is to hold fast to Jesus And trust God with the results. He's saying Jesus is better. Yeah, it's going to cost you something, but hold fast to him because it's worth it. And it's not so untrue today. Now, it's a little bit different for us than for them, right? If I were to take a poll, I bet that less than half of you in this room have faced the temptation this week of going to slaughter animals on an altar in your backyard to provide forgiveness of your sins, right? I mean, maybe even less than 20%. I don't know. A lot of us don't. We're just not tempted by that, right? But we are tempted to remove Jesus from our lives in some ways that help us avoid some persecution, are we not? I remember a mentor of mine was teaching at um, one of our events at IGO at base camp, talking to students who are about to go share the gospel. And it's such a good point. He made this point that, look... Students, if you, you go out and you share the gospel with people, it's going to cost you something. He goes, there's, there's ways you can kind of minimize that, right? Like if you're talking to your friends and family 
and you just mentioned that you believe in God. Well, that's, that's cool, right? We can all have some sympathy for that. I mean, even if someone is an atheist, they're usually pretty okay with you believing that. Hey, that's your thing. I've got my thing. We're cool, right? And even if you say, hey, can I pray for you? And you mentioned that you pray for things and say, hey, can I pray for you about that? Most people are pretty cool with that. Like, oh, man, that's great. Thank you. That means a lot that you would, you know, do whatever that thing is and pray for me. That's, that's cool. But the moment you mention Jesus, things can start to get a little awkward, can't they? Often that is the dividing line. And now we start talking about Jesus. We're getting a little bit uncomfortable now, right? We've kind of crossed the line into something that's acceptable and good to something that's getting a little bit taboo. We're not so different from them as we think when you look at it that way. In 2 Corinthians, Paul warns of people proclaiming another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Paul said there's going to be people, there are people, they're talking about Jesus. But it's not the Jesus that we proclaim to you. It's a false representation and teaching of him. And friends, there already is and will continue to be in our culture a growing temptation to believe in another Jesus than the Jesus of historical Christianity. The Jesus and the faith that Jude says was the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have a temptation to redefine our faith and redefine Jesus into something that's more culturally palatable. Just a few examples of that. Maybe we might be tempted to shy away from the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven and back to a right relationship with God. That's not necessarily a real popular thing to say and to believe. In fact, most people who are believe in some sort of God and tolerate religions would say something like this, that, hey, you know, look, Christianity is just one of many ways that if God is up on top of the mountain, we're all just trying to find our way back to him, right? We're all trying to be better, to follow a good path, to take us to a good place, whatever that thing or power or being is at the top. We're all trying to get there. And Christians go up this side of the mountain Maybe another religion goes up this side and everyone thinks their way is the only way, but they just don't see that there's other people making the same journey just on a different path. But friends, the problem with that is that historical Christianity teaches that, no, 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 we weren't able to get to the top of that mountain. That was a task much beyond our ability to complete and that Jesus, the one true son of God, came down the mountain put us on his back and took us up there when we were powerless to get there ourselves by grace through faith and it is only by his name that anyone can be saved. But saying that and believing that might cost you something. Maybe what we're tempted to is to buy into a faith that allows us to affirm things that our culture celebrates which scripture clearly defines as sin. I thought about things we try to avoid and redefine and work around. The idea of the sexual revolution and the, the push that our culture makes for people to not just be okay with, but affirm and encourage things like homosexuality and transgenderism. And friends, here's the reality of the culture we're living in, that no matter how you say it, even if you never say anything negative about those beliefs about those lifestyles, if you do not affirm it and get behind it and encourage it, 
you are likely to face some level of backlash. And the temptation that we face now and will continue to face as culture progresses that direction is to redefine biblical Christianity, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, in favor of something that helps us avoid that pushback. And there can be some real loss there among friends, family, possibly even job. Maybe it's a temptation to just avoid evangelism. Maybe we can just dodge all of this just by not talking to people who aren't believers about Jesus and we can reconstruct for ourselves a faith that says that's okay. I'll just keep that to myself. I'll go to church. I'll come to worship service. I'll engage my small group. But I'm going to make every effort I can to avoid ever talking to anyone who doesn't believe the way I do about Jesus. Maybe it's a faith that allows us to focus primarily on the American dream and just living the, our best life now with the purposes and people of God is nothing more than an afterthought. What all of those things have in common is they are reshapings of Jesus in historical, biblical Christianity to help us avoid persecution. Their problem is not so different from ours. And the answer is the same. So you're going to go to this? How's that going to work for you? Yeah, if you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you some things, but it's worth it, and he's better. And following him is the best thing any of us could do. Yes, there will be costs. Yes, there will be sacrifices. But it is what we were made for, and it is the only way believing in the true biblical Jesus to be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him forever. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would embrace that today and be confident in that reality. And God, you would just help us to see believing and following Jesus is central is the only answer, the only hope we have. We pray in his name. Amen.